So, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, challenges, uh, you know, when somebody sends you an email and says, hey, can you teach for me this Sunday? And you go, uh, okay. <laughs> Is, uh, you know, how do, how do you take something when you've got, you know, you've got 45 minutes to totally cover something and you can't come back to it next week and finish up? So uh, we're going to look at something this morning that I think is, is universal. So uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer. So I want to take the opportunity today to look at a, a universal topic that either has or is now or will affect everyone in this room and the future, and that is suffering. It's rather interesting that at the end of the conference yesterday, when Joel was teaching the last session, let me move my coffee out of the way here, that uh, you know, he started talking about suffering and that how you know, sometimes biblical counseling gets a bad route because it's all about find the sin problem. But sometimes it's just you're dealing with suffering in general. And so we wanted to talk about that today. I was sitting there going through my mind. During that session yesterday, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in the morning is suffering. So even in the midst of the mountaintop promises of Romans 8, right? Paul says this in verse 17 and 18. Whoa. <laughs> mountaintop, yeah. Do I need to adjust this? Okay. But Paul says this in Romans eight seventeen and 18, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, you just don't get any more ultimate than that, right? I mean, that's not penultimate. That's, that's up there. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Problem is, he doesn't put a period there. Right, there's a comma. And it says, provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. And he goes on to talk about the whole creation itself being subjected to futility. And the fact that it's groaning and that we ourselves are groaning. And he goes on to even talk about nothing separating us from the love of Christ. Right? We love these verses. But then he, then he goes into a list of some of those things that won't separate us, right? Famine, sword, tribulation, persecution, danger, etc. Right, just goes on. Acts 14.22 says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So suffering is, is part of the Christian life and life in general. We will suffer in this world. And we need to learn how to handle it well. Right? Because it's inevitable. And this morning I want to look at an example. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Right? Where else would you go right? <laughs> to, to really get a look at a man who suffered? So in the book of Job, I mean, we're going to start right at the beginning with verse 1. Chapter 1. But over the past nine years, I've, I've been shaken with four of those tragic phone calls. You know, those phone calls nobody wants to get. And so I did a personal study on this book a while back and, and came up with a, a lot of notes just for myself. Um, and there's a million things in this book we could talk about. We're just going to do a flyover, and we're going to pop down in a couple of places and read a couple of passages and look at them and see what it has for us this morning about suffering, because it'd probably take six months worth of lessons to really cover this book, and we've got 45 minutes this morning. But we want to look at, number one, a quick intro to the man Job, number two, an incredible ordeal of suffering that he endured. Number three, his response to it. And then number four, why maybe he responded the way he did. Which I think ultimately is because Job understood Job. He understood God. And he had an understanding of the gospel. 
We're going to look at that this morning. So the book doesn't give us a definite time frame, but it is believed that Job lived around the time of Abraham and Isaac and the patriarchs. So it's one of the oldest events in the Bible outside of Genesis 1 through 11. This makes it all the more fascinating to see Job's view of the gospel, which is what we'll end on today. Now, some people may try to tell you that this book is just a story or an analogy, it's fiction, it's a parable, etc., but other Bible writers refer to Job as a historical person, real, live, nonfiction history. James 5.11 is one example where it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful, referring to Job as a real historical person. And in Ezekiel 14, God lists Job along with Noel and Daniel as real historical people. So this is not some made-up story. This is a real man who endured real circumstances uh, and is recorded for us in Scripture. So in Job chapter 1, verse 1, It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So verse 1 starts off telling us that Job was blameless and and upright. You know what it doesn't say? That Job was sinless, that he was close to achieving sinless perfection. No, it just says he was blameless. A little bit of gospel right there in verse 1. Being blameless before God. Because we won't ever be sinless in this life, but our hope is to be blameless through the perfect righteousness of another one given to us, right? That perfect righteousness of Christ counted as ours. In fact, that's our only hope. And that word blameless there reminds us of, the, uh, of that doxology in Jude, right? Jude verse 24, which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Thank you, Lord, right? <laughs> and to present you blameless before His presence, the presence of His glory with great joy. And so Job is blameless because of this. So long before Moses and the law or the temple, Job is offering burnt offerings, apparently in a realization that the wages of sin is death and there must be a sacrifice. And it's just interesting to think about how God gets His truth to His people. At this point, there's no church, no law, no temple, no nothing. Yet Job is worshiping God appropriately and counted as blameless. And then in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now that's very interesting. Here we're getting a glimpse into the heaven, right? The throne room of heaven here. And we see that Satan's free to, to roam the earth, walking up and down on it. And verse 8 continues. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you... Considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, 
a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So what are some things you notice there in that little interaction? Yeah, who starts this? God does. Yeah, God is the one who says, have you considered my servant Job? He starts this. God's up to something here, right? as He always is. So there's a purpose here, which is comforting to know in the midst of the suffering that will result. What else do you notice here? Yep. He is in control of the circumstances. Yep. Yep, and that's where we're going next. Thank you for the uh, <laughs> for the intro there. That's where, that's where we're going next. Yeah, and so, and in verse 10 there, you know, I, I like that verse because it, it tells us that God can and does for His own purposes. He may put a hedge around us of protection. Right? Satan complains that God is protecting Job. You've got a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side and you've blessed the work of his hands. And that's a... That's a wonderful thought here. One thing to note is uh, um, in this book and in the, the Bible in general is it does not teach dualism. Now, what do I mean by that? I was listening to a, a sermon one time and, and, and the pastor started playing the game of opposites, right? He'd say, I'm going to throw out a word and you tell me the opposite. You know, light, dark, cold, hot. God, Satan, he said, gotcha, right? They are not equal opposites, right? There's not like these equal forces of good and evil. God is God. Satan is his creature, right? And he is God's devil. Satan is not God's equal opposite by any means. He is his creature and is, in a sense, on his leash, and that's a comfort to us as well. And so verse 11 says, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So what's going on here? And you've already alluded to it. right? We have Satan the accuser making an accusation against both God and Job. He accuses Job that Oh, he's not really blameless and upright. He's just in this for the goodies that he gets from God. You see that in what he's saying here? You've blessed the work of his hands. But you, you take that stuff and he'll curse you to your face. So Job's just in it for the goodies. He's, he's, it's really all about self-interest. And he accuses God that his people follow him for the same reason, because he is, in essence, a divine briber. I'm going to give you stuff and protect you and all this, and uh, that's why you follow me. So he bribes them with these gifts, and they follow him. So, I mean, that's what he's basically, that's the challenge in verse 11 there, right? Shut off the flow of blessings, and they'll curse you to your face. So Satan is, uh, in essence, accusing both sides of this whole thing being a sham, right? The gospel is a sham. God nor the justified blameless sinners are real. It's not really about justice and mercy and grace and love and atonement. It's an exchange of, of favors here. 
That's his accusation. Which gets to the question of what is at the core of our faith. Are we after gifts or the giver? Because there is a very successful prosperity gospel out there today for which Satan's accusations are true. Could it be that suffering is the one thing that cuts right through that and exposes that we might just have a prosperity gospel? Because we're about to see the vivid case of a man with no prosperity gospel. So verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So there's another strike here against dualism. And it's a pretty breathtaking statement of God's sovereignty. So here you see Satan is creature. He has to stay within the lines painted on the side of the road by the Lord. Right? Here are the lines. You may not cross these. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So he is, after all, a created being, and like all creation, he will fulfill the purposes of the Creator. So God says, Satan, all those blessings you think are just bribes are now in your hand, and you are permitted to do with them as you wish but you may not hurt him. That's pretty awesome. Because God is never the author of sin and evil. And Satan will go and do what he does purely for evil purposes. But God will use it for good. God is putting limits on the evil that Satan can do. That's a deep, deep well to swim in. He will use this evil just like he did with the murder of Jesus for glorious purposes, all while not being the originator of it, but predestining that it happened. You can go check out Acts 4, 27 and 28 sometime. Where they murdered the Son of God as it was predestined for them to do. But out of that came the salvation of us all. It's one of the mind-boggling glories of God, how He is so sovereign and so glorious that He, in fact, uses the rebellion against Him, which is our sin, and evil acts of people for which we are responsible to accomplish fantastic purposes such as the redemption of His people. He is never surprised by sin and is working a purpose in it. And as you... As you Think about these things and consider, I, and you quickly get to the point with Paul in, in Romans 11 where he just says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Right? He's just beyond, beyond me. All right, in verses 13 through 19, we start to get to, uh, to the hard part here, Job's suffering. Verses 13 through 19 are the account where in one day, one day, all of his servants, his flocks, and his children are wiped out. As a single servant escaped each tragedy, One servant escapes each tragedy and comes and reports to Job what he has just lost. It says, and while he was yet speaking, another would come. I mean, this is not fiction. This is a real event that happened to this man. And so they come one after the other, after the other, after the other. Job, this is, you won't believe this. This is what just happened. And this is what's been lost. And it's hard to imagine. 
that's crushing. And you look at the causes of his losses here. A group of Sabaeans attack and kill his servants. Fire from heaven, a freak lightning storm, I don't know. But it says fire from heaven comes down and kills his flocks and wipes out his wealth. The Chaldeans attack other servants and flocks. And then a great wind crushes the house in which all of his children are and kills them. Remember, this isn't fiction. It's as, it's as if all heaven and earth has suddenly turned against him in a matter of minutes. It's completely out of the blue for Job. Right? He doesn't have the benefit of the first 12 verses of the story here. He doesn't know of Satan's attack on God and the gospel and himself. This is just out of the blue. So this book of Job is not an easy book. And it destroys these simple Jesus is my buddy views of God, right? Especially as you get to the end and read the last chapters. And all of this suffering and tragedy is from God or at the least fully permitted by Him. That's not easy for us to deal with. But look at Job's response in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Oh, man, that gets me every time I read it. He fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job grieves, but his response, if you put yourself in his place for more than 30 seconds, is just amazing. He fell to the ground and worshipped. When you get bad news, is that your first thought? Not mine. <laughs> There have been a couple of times, but mostly, no. I'm not in a worship mood at the time. I should worship God? This is, it's way beyond the world's understanding and beyond anything the world can give. Right? That's of God's Spirit. That kind of response does not naturally arise from within our old nature. And not only does he worship, but look at how he specifically worships. He throws himself on these bedrock doctrines of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. He gave, he takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's interesting because many today struggle with the interaction between those two. Especially with the problem of the existence of evil, right? So many think that either God is sovereign, but He can't be good because He allows evil. Or they think, well, He's good, but then He can't be sovereign because of evil's existence. And this book won't give, and our finite minds probably can't handle the ultimate answer to those questions and how that works. But we just followed Job's example. Job throws himself on the ground and simply declares that God is both. He can give. He can take. He is blessed. He's sovereign and good. That's the bedrock under Job's faith and should be the bedrock under ours. When all else is stripped away, do we land here? God's sovereign and He is good. There's so much wrapped up in Job's view of God here, and thus himself, just in these few verses. Think about the attitudes that allow someone to respond this way. God is sovereign. He gives as He pleases. He can take as He pleases. He owns it all. It was not mine. 
Think about this. Job doesn't blame all these things that happen. He, he doesn't say it was the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the wind or the fire that ultimately was the cause of this loss. He said the Lord took. He knows the ultimate cause was God. I deserve none of it. I have no right to complain about losing what was not really mine to begin with, but a gift. When the Creator takes back what is His, I have no right to charge Him with wrong. He is God, and I am mere man. As God, it is His sole and absolute right to do with His creation as He wishes. But I trust in His goodness as He does so. I have no idea whatsoever as to the why of this crushing tragedy, but I ultimately trust the who behind it. What a high view of God that produces an appropriately low view of Himself. And if we're ever tempted to doubt God's goodness in things like this, when we get those phone calls, then just run to the cross. Right. Contemplate Jesus Christ, God incarnate, on the cross. And you won't long doubt God's goodness there. Now what a beautiful thing this is here in verses 21 to 22. Right? You know why? Because right off the bat, God has proven that Satan's accusation is a lie. He took it all. And he did not curse God to his face. He worshipped. It's not a sham. Now something very important in Job chapter 2. First first three verses of Job 2 here. This is almost a word-for-word repeat of the previous scene in heaven. But in the last half of verse 3, God adds something and it's amazing. This is what God says. He says, He still holds fast His integrity. Although you incited me against Him to destroy Him without reason. Now why is that important? Yep. And He did all this and He says, without reason. That's very important I think for us today. Because this book will go on for 30 chapters with Job and his friends basically telling Job he's done something to deserve this. Job, you've done something to deserve this suffering. But here God readily admits right up front that Job is blameless and has given God no reason for this suffering. That's important. As I said, this is not an easy book to digest. But it really helps us with this popular belief that suffering is a one-to-one result of some personal sin. And I recently shared uh, these notes I'd taken on this study of Job with a, with a friend whose, whose husband was in hospice dying of cancer. Just you know, felt led to do that one day sent them to her. And her husband did die. And, and, eventually, and she, she replied back to me. This is what she said. She said, It was very helpful and, and encouraging. Especially since we have been told to simply confess our sins and God will heal him. Well, we have confessed every sin that God has brought to mind and he still isn't healed. Can you imagine the weight of thinking that that suffering was the direct result, this one-to-one result of some personal sin, and then they just can't find it. And that's an incredible burden to bear, and this book teaches us we need not bear that. Now, sin is the result. I mean, suffering is the result of sin in general, but there's not... Always. There can be, but there's not always. There's one to one. You did X, therefore you suffer Y. 
That's not the case in Jesus, not the case in Job. But, I mean, this is common. The disciples had the same mentality, right? The man born blind on the side of the road had been suffering his whole life as a beggar. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's got to be the result of some exact precise sin that he suffered this way. And Jesus said, no, it's not. This man's lifetime of suffering is not some direct punishment for a a particular sin in his life. It's for my glory at this moment. So I can heal him. And you can see my glory by my showing my power at this moment. So there is a universal tie between suffering and sin. This is a cursed, fallen world due to sin. And there is a groaning within it for the day that Christ returns. But we just can't say that specific instances of suffering are due to specific sins and specific people. And this book shows us that. God's doing something else through this suffering. And it's not punishing Job for some specific sin in his life. Now in verses 4 through 8, Satan pushes this contest a little farther. It's as if he's saying, okay, you, you, you won round one. This gospel isn't just about wealth and happiness, but let's get beyond the normal external blessings of wealth and family. If, if you threaten the man's health and his very life, well, then he'll curse you. I grant you that it's not just about wealth, but the fundamental challenge is still there. Threaten his health and his life and this whole thing will be shown to be a sham. And again, God in His sovereignty sets a boundary on Satan's evil. Now he can mess with Job himself. He just can't take his life. So nothing, I mean nothing, can come into your life, even things that threaten your physical death, unless the sovereign God permits it. And then in Job 2, verses 9 through 10, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, the text doesn't tell us much about Job's wife. In fact, this one sentence is the totality of what we hear from her. So let's show her some, uh, some mercy here and give her the benefit of a doubt. I mean, she's just lost all her children as well, right? And she may just be having a, one of those Peter moments there. Job doesn't say she's normally a foolish woman. Just in this instance, she's speaking like one would speak. So I just see a wife and a mom who has just lost everything as well, except her husband, and now he is on the verge of death. And so we can understand her, her lashing out in a moment of weakness there. But again, Job's response just floors me. Shall we receive all the good things from God and yet not calamity? I mean, if you have the word evil in your translation, as I do in mine, it's footnoted that it's speaking of disaster or calamity. Because we know from other scripture that God is not the author of evil. But think about the view of God that Job has here that allows him to respond this way. Job is saying, look, we have received so much undeserved blessing from the Lord all this time. We could barely contain all the blessings that He heaped upon us. So now that He takes it away, do we grumble and complain? We didn't deserve any of it to begin with. Shouldn't we praise Him for the time we had it and refrain from complaining when we get something closer to what we deserve? I mean, these attitudes that show forth in Job's words here are just amazing. The view of God and His character and Job and His position before God is so rare. 
Someone who really understands that God is creator and king and we are creature. Uh, he is potter and we are clay. He forms what he wishes for his good pleasure and we are the thing formed. In fact, Job's response reminds me of a song that we sing ever so often in the, in the worship service here. And it goes, shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow, then doubt? Are you good only when I prosper? Are you true only when I'm filled? Are you king only when I'm carefree? And God only when I'm well? And then the songwriter switches to answer his own rhetorical questions here. No. You are good when I'm poor and needy. You are true when I am parched and dry. You still reign in the deepest valley. And you're still God in the darkest night. This book shows us that. God is God. And that's what I keep coming back to as I read this book. He is God. I'm His creature. And the fact that He is gracious and merciful to us is amazing. There's nothing outside of himself that makes him do that. It's just who he is. There is no moral law above God that he must obey. There's no law of grace above him that he's trying to live up to. He is God and he does what he pleases and he's totally uninfluenced by anything outside of himself. His goodness, his grace, his mercy is given because it's who He is. And no other reason. So we end with the declaration that Job is not sinning with his lips. His lips are teaching us truth. So we've gone, in, we've gone through the intro of Job the man and the situation. And we've seen the suffering he endured. And we've seen his incredible response. We've seen a little of why he responds this way, which is his view of God. So now let's look at the, the rest of the answer, some of Job's view of the gospel. So let's jump over to chapter 9. I'm going to dip down into a few verses here throughout the rest of the book and see something else I think that's going on in Job that helps explain how he can respond this way. Now, if you read through all of chapter 9, I mean, Job despairs in the middle of the chapter. Um, But in verse 32 and 33, I love what he says here. Because Job expresses the base problem of all mankind. The need for a mediator between holy God and us. And so chapter 9, verse 32, he says, speaking of God, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Right? God is beyond me. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. There is this chasm between me, the sinner, and the holy God. And there's nobody to cross it. What an understanding, right? From early, early, early on in the history of time here. Job cries out that he is God and I am man and I cannot bridge that gap. We as men cannot stand before God. We need a mediator. One who can lay his hand on us both. So Job, even at this time in history, points to the vital need 
for a God-man. We need someone who can bridge that unbridgeable gap by being both fully God and fully man at the same time. Right? And in our mind comes along 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So then let's jump over to Job 19. Take a big leap here. And what a chapter this is. Now I'm not even going to get to the chapters at the end where God shows up and speaks to Job and says, well, where were you when I did all these wonderful things at creation and all? Or the, you know, when Job, I can't even teach on this verse, you know, the whole, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But here in Job 19, we get to the core of Job's faith, and I think it's the same core as our faith. In the first 22 verses, Job recounts his misery and suffering and, and, and what's happened to him. And how everyone, including his three friends, have turned away. And he's left with nothing but what he's about to say. And I see this as a lead up to where we're going, where he's going at the end. I've lost everything this world has to offer yet. So in verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And so he's telling us in a very graphic way the importance of what he's about to say. That his words would be inscribed in a book or graven in a rock with an iron pen forever. And what's cool is they were. (laughs) The book. I mean, 2,000 years later or more, more than 2,000. And we're reading them. And studying them. It's pretty cool. Jesus said, uh, right, we're reading them several thousands of years later, and it is forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth would pass away, but not one dot or iota of his word would pass away. So Job's wish here came true. What he's about to say is of grave importance, and he believes it to be the foundational truth that he holds with veracity here. Remember that this is one of the oldest events in the Bible from the patriarchal time. Yet here is Job's understanding of the gospel. In verse 25, he begins, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now I read a few commentaries on these verses, and they're just all over the place. And I'm, I'm going to go with the fact that the same word made flesh, who would one day stand on the earth, is the one who inspired this book to be written. And it all hangs together. That this is an example of the true Old Testament saving faith of a man God has already spoken of as being blameless before him. And there's only one way to do that. Job can only get there the same way we do. By faith in the one exclusive promised Redeemer. In his case, it's the coming Redeemer. And in our case, it's Jesus Christ who came and died and was resurrected and will return. So I think these verses at the end of chapter 19 are one of the main reasons the book exists. To show us that a man who, when he loses everything, but he has the Redeemer, he has everything. Even though he is slain and die and his body rots. There are numerous other lessons in this book 
But the point of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. And I said it's the point of Job as well. So there are several things here. First is his use of the word redeemer. In Hebrew, it's goel, G-O-E-L. And we find it used in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. But most noticeably in Leviticus and Ruth. In Ruth, Boaz, a type or a foreshadowing of the coming Christ, is the kinsman redeemer. He's an example of what a kinsman redeemer is in Leviticus. He is a redeemer in that he purchases or ransoms or buys back, but he's also a kinsman. Job has already spoken of this need for such a one in chapter 9, one who can lay his hand on us both and, and be the mediator, a redeemer who is a kinsman. Then, Job then says that such a redeemer will stand on the earth. So does Job foresee that his kinsman redeemer will stand on the earth, triumphant in a body of flesh at the last? Yeah, so we're seeing some of Job's eschatology here. This redeemer will stand in the flesh at the last, triumphant. The Redeemer has already stood on the earth in a body of flesh once and will return to stand on the earth fully triumphant at the end of the age. And then he says, lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job knows that his Redeemer will not come into existence one day. He won't just live one day in the future, but he lives now. He's not just some created being to come in the future. He is alive now, and one day he will stand on the earth. So Job has lost it all from a worldly sense. Almost unfathomable suffering. But where does he get his comfort? What has allowed him to respond as he has? And he's lost it all but one thing. What is that one thing? What's left for him to cling to? I think his answer is wrapped up right there in that, in that verse. And in three words, my and I know, my Redeemer lives. Mine, personal. Not just a Redeemer lives, my Redeemer lives. And secondly, I know. I don't think, I don't wish, I read somewhere once. I know that my Redeemer lives. I don't hope, I know that my Redeemer lives. So when all else fails Him, this is where Job lands. And I hope that would be true of us and of me as well. So these verses here look like a beautiful Old Testament example of Job's belief in the truth that's spoken of in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, which says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Ever think about that? The hope of the resurrection and gazing upon Jesus purifies us. So here's an example of a man that has believed that from some of the earliest of the Old Testament times, even if he dies and his skin is destroyed, or as the King James translates it, worms destroy my body. Job states triumphantly that in my flesh I will see God. That hope and the resurrection. From the very earliest time, true saints hope in the bodily resurrection. Job is emphatic in verse 27. His eyes shall behold, though his body destroyed and eaten by worms, yet his eyes, not another, shall see for himself in the flesh. 
So even in the midst of suffering, this incredible suffering, there's hope. Don't ever lose hope. Even in this ultimate thing here. He is not left hopeless. There is still this ultimate hope. And finally, his hope for a bodily resurrection is about one thing. It's not just to live again in a body. At the end of verse 26, we see what he's hoping in a bodily resurrection for. I shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's why Job is hoping in his body and in his eyes being resurrected. He will see God. So what is heaven? Why do you want to be there? A good bit of talk you hear about heaven out there in the world today is it's a place where you can finally do what you want. I can just play golf all the time. That's not why Job wants to be resurrected and, uh, and, be, and be there. Or even be back with his loved ones who has previously died. Right? Whatever your dreams and aspirations are here that are unfulfilled, heaven is the place where they are finally fulfilled. But Job's lost everything, and yet when he speaks of his own resurrection, and he says, the number one thing I want to see is God. And that's the point. Heaven is heaven. And the resurrection is the resurrection. Because we get to see God, and God is there. And that's his hope. So Job says, in the last day, in the end, I will be in my resurrected body. And I will see God. And that's his hope. The world can fall apart around me. That's where I'm headed. That's my hope. Let goods and kindred go, right? This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. The saving hope of a man who has lost it all, but has in reality gained it all. As we said earlier, he's going to be an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus. That's everything. That's everything. So he's gained it all, actually, through his faith in a Redeemer who lives. And his hope in a bodily resurrection while he will see him. Let's pray.